2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's a pretty good sermon right there. I don't have to... What, what can you add to that, right? And yet, you expect me to, um, <laughs> to say something about it, not add to it. Um, so for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Redeemer's values, and we're beginning with the gospel. Now, let me clarify I am in no way attempting to define gospel community and mission entirely in 30 minutes. It's not going to happen. There's always going to be meat left on the bone. If you think about what is the gospel, many people would jump to John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that any, whosoever should believe in him will have, may have eternal life. Okay. But that's actually very incomplete. That tells you part of the gospel, but if it says nothing about the wrath of God, it says nothing about sanctification, how God makes us more like him through the gospel. It says nothing about the, the burden that we have to then share the gospel. So it's a good verse, but it alone can't give us everything. And I can't give you everything in one 30-minute sermon. So what we're going to do instead throughout these weeks is we're going to take passages that highlight an aspect of each of the, these values, and we're going to focus in on that. The benefit of that is one, you're not going to feel like you're drinking through a fire hose, right? I'm not going to just hammer you with a bunch of stuff. Two, I can preach on the values every year until long after I'm gone, and I'll be able to pick up a different aspect of each one every year and help unfold a little bit more of what it means to be a church that values the gospel, community, and mission. And this passage specifically that Paul has here, this one, oh boy, it says an awful lot, but I'm going to try to highlight two things that are central, that undergird Redeemer, theologically and practically in all that we do, that the gospel saves us from something and for something. Okay, so two points. See, I'm breaking from a three-point sermon. It's a new day. <laughs> it's a new day, two-point sermon. It'll still be just as long. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but two points. So let's get into what the gospel frees us from. Okay, so Let's understand the context. Paul here, speaking to the Corinthian church, is defending himself. Paul has been attacked by the Corinthians, and they accuse him of being a pretender. He's not a real apostle, he's just a guy. He's fallible, he's broken, he's not an apostle. And Paul is defending his apostleship, not because Paul has an ego, but because Paul realizes something. He says that they are in danger of seeing him the way he saw Christ. Remember when he says, you're, we no longer see anyone according to the flesh, right? As I once saw Christ, he says, according to the flesh. What he's saying is this. 
Once upon a time, I only looked at Jesus as a material human being. And as a result, all I saw him as was teacher, philosopher, social rights activist. But I didn't see him as Messiah. I was limiting because I was only looking at him as a material, from a materialistic perspective. I only saw him according to the flesh. And as a result, a Christ that is only seen as material will never be seen as Savior. Never. So he's saying, Corinthians, if you see me only according to what I look like, how old I am, how, Ill, how I'm sick, how I'm crotchety, Paul could be crotchety if you ever read these letters. If you only see me according to the flesh, you will not just reject me, which is bad, but you'll reject my message, which is deadly for you. Because to reject Paul, he's saying, is to reject the message I bring. And that message is one of reconciliation. And so for that reason, he's adamant, he's imploring them, don't see me just as who you think I am. See what I am bringing as I am a messenger of God, not just this guy named Paul. So he's imploring, he's defending himself for their sake. Now, the message he brings is one of reconciliation. And this is not a popular topic. Well, it's, very, it's, in, the, it's in the media, there's that word around a lot. But reconciliation implies alienation. What it means is this. You need reconciliation because there's something broken. You're alienated from God. There's a separation. You're under judgment. You are going to die if you don't reconcile. Okay? This is what Paul's message is. That's why he thinks it's so important. If you don't know this, there's trouble. You are, make no mistake, let me be very clear about this. You are not saved. I heard a song this week, a Christian song says, I, I know one who saves me from myself. That's not good theology. Christ doesn't save you from yourself. He saves you from God. God is angry at you because of your sin. You are saved from the wrath of God. When Christ says, I don't want to drink this cup in Gethsemane, he's not saying, I want to drink, don't want to drink the cup of, of you know, my own bad choices. I don't want to drink the cup of wrath. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the cup is filled with God's wrath. You are saved from God, by God. And that is not a very popular view today. Never was. Not when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon we talked about. Not when Paul said it. Not when Peter said it. Not when Jesus said it. So, and look, think about today. If we look at Canadians today and the people, people that we're listening to, when you suggest to someone that they need to be saved, here are some of the responses you get. And these are all very influential people. Not big names, but people who are slowly influencing our country through their power on social media. Okay, one author named R.M. Drake, Drake. I don't need to be saved. I need to be respected. That's all. Okay? Um, Singer-songwriter, Regina Spector. I am the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. Modern poet, maybe a woman. Nobody knows who this person is. They go by the name of J. Ironword, and they're, nobody knows who they are. It could be a man, could be a woman, could be a robot. We don't know. But here's what they say. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found and appreciated for exactly who I am. The gospel says you are, and that's the, part, that's the bad part. You're found to be exactly who you are. But let me, and the last one I'll quote, because I could keep going, is another author named Brooke, Brooke Hampton. She says, I am not waiting for a hero. I saved myself long ago. I don't need someone to, to complete me. I am whole alone. I just, want to be, I just want a weirdo to go on adventures with. Someone who will dance with me, kiss me when I least expect it, and make me laugh. She's complete on her own, but she needs someone else to be with. Interesting, isn't it? No one has questioned her, maybe, on that contradiction. I don't think she's listening. But if you are Brooke, you can call me. Because <laughs> there's a problem here. And I'm not mocking them. 
there's an inherent issue here. And the big issue, let me give you two observations. One apologetic, one observation that will go into the sermon. First, from an apologetic perspective, just because you don't feel guilty, just because you don't feel that there is a judge who is dangling you over the fire, as Jonathan Edwards says, just because you don't feel that doesn't mean it's not true. And I may have told you this story before. When I was traveling for work years ago, I, went, I had a day off in Calgary, so I drove to Banff by myself. Um, it was a great time. I went home. Everything was good. Two months later, I got a speeding ticket in the mail from Photo Radar. Now, for two months, I felt very innocent. I didn't know. If somebody had said, you're guilty of speeding, I'm like, prove it. I don't see a ticket. I don't feel guilty. And yet I was. The entire time I was guilty. My feeling innocent had nothing to do with it. So feelings, let's push those aside, first of all. Not feeling like you need a savior is not logical, if you want to get into logic. But let me go to a bigger, deeper problem. The issue with not wanting to be saved and not thinking we need to be saved is rooted in the fact that we don't want anyone above us. No one to judge us. No one tell me if I'm behaving right or wrong. If there is a judge, it's me, not him. Let me give an example. C.S. Lewis in his uh, an essay called God in the Dock said this, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And Lewis is right. Something happens in the human history, and we could trace it, but we don't have the time, where slowly the positions change. Almost, and I don't want to make it too, too comical, but you know those Bugs Bunny cartoons when the gun is pointed at Bugs, but somehow he's talking, and slowly you see he's just turning the gun around on Elmer Fudd? This has happened in humanity. Once upon a time we approached God knowing we were under, that we had obligation to someone or something greater than us. But over the years, it's been turned. And now we say, if there is to be a trial, God's on the dock, not us. He has to account for this world, not me. And that's a very big change in the history of, of humanity. And just after the Second World War, Germans were struggling to figure out and to come to terms with what they were starting to hear about the Holocaust and these atrocities. And one playwright in Germany named Gunther Rutenborn not well known, he wrote a little play that is very powerful, and it's called The Sign of Jonah. And in it, he's trying to wrestle with who is to blame for the Holocaust. So he creates this, this fictional trial, and he has a, the whole thing is based in a courtroom, and the, the whole, they're trying to figure out who is responsible for sin, who's responsible for the mess that humanity is in. And they start at the bottom, and they work their way up. They start with man. They say men are to blame, specifically gender, men. But no, then they move and say, no, it's the wives. Then they move and say, no, it's the officers, then the generals, you know, then the political leaders. And eventually the queen is on the throne or on the stand. And she starts defending herself. And she says, listen, I've made some decisions. I've been brutal, no doubt about it. But I only had to be brutal because God made these people the sort that only listened to an iron fist. He's the one who made them stubborn. He's the one who gave me power and the desire to use it in this way. If anyone should be on trial, it's God. And the courtroom slowly changes and people start saying, you're right, you're right, it is God's fault. And they, they convict God. Then they give him a verdict and they say, here is your sentence. You, 
God of the universe, are sentenced to be born a human, to suffer all that we suffer because of what you allow, and then you will die a shameful death as all these people that you have created die. And then we find out that the judge is actually God, and he says, okay, I'll do it. The whole time we are yelling, crucify, crucify, he says, amen. And this radical issue here is vital to us when we talk about the gospel because we are saved from wrath by God. Paul gets it perfectly. I mean, not perfectly, as I said, but it's right there. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, you don't want a savior. You never asked for a savior and you wouldn't ask for a savior. You would ask for many things, but that play and C.S. Lewis and those people I've quoted, they're all showing you exactly what's in every one of our hearts. You're not even a beggar, you see, because when a beggar begs for money, they know they have a need. That's why they ask for money. You're not even that because you don't even know you have a need. You have a savior who comes to you and you say, get out of here, and you kill him. So when Christ comes to us, when the gospel comes to us as we are saved from wrath, Paul, look at what he does so brilliantly here. He makes us see in this, in this passage that it has nothing to do with you. Nothing. You don't choose God. Look at what he says. Verse 18. I'm just going to do chunks. God reconciled us. Who's in the driver's seat? God reconciled us. Verse 19. He was reconciling the world to himself. You didn't reconcile yourself to God. Christ, God reconciles you to him. You have no part in this. Then, verse 21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become. See? He becomes sin so that you might become righteous. Not your doing. And this is vital for us to understand because if you don't, understand, if you don't see Christ as one who saved you, though you didn't ask for it and you didn't want it and you don't deserve it, you're always going to think you, he owes you something. You're always going to be convinced that I know he saved me freely, but I'm better than Sally and Joe. I hope there's no Sally and Joes listening. Um, you know, I'm better than them. I've, I've been tithing. I was a pastor for a lot of years. I built this church, you know. I know he saved me freely, but... And that little but in there is the rottenness of sin that makes us think that we've done something. You are saved from wrath purely because of God. And this is a real forgiveness. When he says the old has passed away and the new has come, listen, I'm a rotten sinner, and I know all of you are too. You don't have to admit it. And when God says he forgives me and my past is gone, I don't have to worry he's going to bring it up again later. I don't have to worry that he's going to be like me, that when I say, oh, I forgave you, but secretly I've been harboring a bitterness against you for years, days, months, years, pick decades, and I'm just waiting for it to come up so I can throw it back in your face that I was the bigger one. That's the kind of forgiveness I give. Hopefully not often, but that's what humans do. When, when Paul says that your past is gone, it's gone. He's not waiting to lord it over you. He's given it to you freely, given this forgiveness to you freely. And this is important for us because Redeemer is powered by this. The gospel will make Redeemer strange. If it hasn't already, it will. And this is what I mean by it. There are going to be times where I and you will be accused of being all at once legalists and licentious, you know, uh, cheap gracers. Because you're going to say something like this. When you come to Redeemer, for instance, we expect everyone here to live righteous lives. We expect us all to be perfect. But 
We know you're not perfect. So if you come, and I'm just going to throw a random one, don't feel attacked. If you come and say, yeah, listen, but this is what I'm doing sexually. I'm not living, this is the way I think it's okay to do what I'm doing with my sexual life. I and the elders and we will hold you accountable and say, that's just not biblical. So we're going to be tough on that. But when you slip and fall, we're going to say, gosh, we know how hard it is. And we're not going to cancel you and throw you out. We're all at once going to hold you to a high standard, but love you when you stumble, because that's what Christ did. And that is incredibly hard. It's going to make us look at times like we're contradictory and we're hypocrites. And the simple answer is, that's because we are. But we're trying desperately to understand this gospel. Because he forgave everything that I didn't deserve to be forgiven, I can be hard on the gospel, but soft in mercy. And that's a balance. I don't know how we're going to accomplish it other than just simply leaning on Christ continually. But that's a value. So we have to see that the gospel saves us from wrath that you deserved. You all deserve death, every one of you, watching at home or otherwise. But by grace, if you have accepted Christ, it's amazing, isn't it? You accept Christ and it says you, you, you are given his righteousness. You are in Christ. And what it means is now as you're in the gaze of God staring at you, knowing you're a sinner, Christ comes and envelops you. So that now when he looks at you, all he sees is Christ. Oh, that's all he sees. So you have a free pass into heaven because of Christ. But it's not entirely free. You do have to give up your life. But thankfully, he's gracious, and he helps us do that by degrees. So first point is we're saved from wrath. The second thing is, I think, I don't say more important, as much as less emphasized, that we are saved for something. If we stop at only saying that you are saved from wrath, then you become the sort of person who thinks, well, now I'm good. I don't need to work hard. I don't have to serve God. I don't have to tithe. I don't have to love people. I don't have to try to restore the world. I can just, I'm, I'm good. But notice how Paul, <laughs> it's brilliant. It's amazing I didn't see this far earlier as a young Christian. But look at verse 19. Look how seamlessly Paul moves from God, how, what God does to save us to what happens after we're saved. But it's at the same time. Look, just listen to it. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He doesn't say he's reconciled us to him, cross, right, sacrifice, and then after that, you're given a message. No. He uses inclusive language as if the gospel includes the mission to be reconcilers. So the gospel isn't, hey, I'm saved, and now the gospel sits on a shelf, and now I have to do other things. You know, I often hear people say, you know, Christianity is almost like a country club. Somebody has paid the dues, the initiation fee, but you've got to keep up the payments. You know, Christ's cross has got you into heaven, but you better keep yourself there by your good works. Nonsense. Nonsense. The gospel does it all. And here, what Paul is saying is, part and parcel, wrapped in with the gospel, is not just salvation, but obligation. It's not an add-on. Part of the gospel is you are saved from wrath for a mission. It's simple. It's just part of it. It's not an add-on. I shouldn't have to, and I do, and I have to remind myself, I shouldn't have to remind myself and all of us that, no, you're obliged to be reconcilers. It's not just something you do if you feel the gift. Tough bananas. It's part of reconciliation with Christ is that he makes you a reconciler. Now, Paul's language here I put it here. So reconciliation has been accomplished, but he then recruits us to announce its reality and availability. So we are then called in to this. And he says, I've already accomplished reconciliation. It's your, not your job to reconcile people to, to God, 
but your job is to announce its, its availability and its reality, that you can be reconciled to God. And Paul uses this wonderful metaphor of ambassadors. Now, there's two sides to this ambassador metaphor when he says, you are now ambassadors for Christ. One is the Roman version, and the one is the more modern one. Now, in the Roman context, it's important to understand this. Everyone reading it would have known one clear fact. Rome never sent an ambassador to anyone ever. Okay? You only send ambassadors in the ancient world if you're weak. An ambassador would come to Rome to plead for favor. So, in fact, we have documents where the Caesar Augustus is boasting about a lineup of, of nations that wait to hear him get his favor and pay him homage. Because it would be a silly thing for Rome to send an ambassador to Pythia or to Israel. You wouldn't do it. You don't send an ambassador. You send a general. You send Pilate. Because they are subject people. So, when Paul says that God, God of the universe, who should be getting ambassadors from heaven, ask, from earth, asking him for favor. Instead, God says, no, I, the powerful one, am going to send ambassadors to the world. He's going to lower himself and do something even Rome wouldn't do. And everyone there would have said, well, that's weird. Why is he sending ambassadors? He doesn't need to. We should be going to him. And God says, yes, you should, but you won't come to me. So I have to come to you. So he then sends us out. So it's a powerful image in the excuse me, in the ancient world, but think about it in the modern context as well, what you and I know about ambassadors. Ambassadors are sent to other nations. They go to another nation. Let's suppose I am sent as an ambassador to Portugal, near and dear to my heart. Um, if I am sent there, make no mistake, I, I'm sent by my home country. I then go, and my task in Portugal, or that country I'm sent to, wherever it is, is to learn that country well, to study its history, to know its language, to know what it values, to cheer for its soccer team, to try to, to best team in the world, by the way, um, and, to, and to really try to, 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 to grow and to benefit that world. That's my job. I'm sent there to be that. But make no mistake, if you go into the ambassador's office of most ambassadors in the country, you're going to see something. The flag of their home nation, but not the nation that there's, not the other nation. That'll be out in the lobby when people come to visit. But in his office or her office, it's the Canadian flag or wherever they're sent from. You and I are ambassadors to this world, but we are not of this world. We are to remember always that our interests, our, our job is to promote the interests of our citizenship, that country, which is Christ's the kingdom of God. And we're sent, so we have to love this world. I should know. We should know why it, why it believes what it does to serve it, to love it. But make no mistake, you don't belong here. And that is an incredibly powerful image that we are sent here into the Niagara region to be these sorts of ambassadors for the region. David Garland, New Testament scholar, says this, the ministry of reconciliation, therefore, involves more than simply explaining to others what God has done in Christ. It requires that one become an active reconciler oneself. Like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. We become little versions of God. In fact, you know, in Genesis, when we're called the image of God, the word image is the word idol. You're made an idol of God. And your job is to do what God did. And God creates order out ex nihilo, right, from nothing. You and I, it's one thing we preach, surely, but we're also called to go into those areas where there is disharmony, where there exists no peace, no reconciliation, no love, 
and we are to make it and to bear the cost of it ourselves like Christ did. That means you may have to get into the middle of a messy neighbor's problem with, you know, property rights of a tree hanging over. You may have to get into trouble at work or in the world, but you are called to go in and make peace where it doesn't exist and to bear the cost of the peace yourself. That's hard. <laughs> but that's what we're called to do. This is part of what ambassadors do. Ambassadors for Christ, anyway. And so, Redeemer is a church that is convinced of this complete view of the gospel, that the gospel saves us from wrath, makes us more like Jesus as we apply the gospel to our lives, and charges us with the task of reconciliation in the world. Now, let me close here. That's, we are saved from wrath for a mission. That's what the gospel is, and we believe this. And so we are fueled, right? The gospel, knowing we're saved from wrath, makes us desiring to go out into the world. We see we have nothing to lose. Eternity is yours. So we go out with gratitude and joy, but we also go out with a mission to very intentionally transform the world, not to promote our own interests. You know, a bad ambassador goes to Portugal or whatever country and says, I'm going to use my position to leverage my position. It's a bad ambassador. We instead go out because of the gospel and we go out and do all these things into our community. We don't look and we don't take it personally. If somebody says, can we use your building for something? We don't say, but I don't want the floors to be messy. It's more work for people vacuuming the floors. Stop it. This building is not yours. Clean up the mess before the world. That's what Christ did. That's harsh, isn't it, for me to say? But that's what we have to be like. We have to be willing to bear the cost of reconciliation. When, when people come to me, my own family comes to me and says, where's God? If he's here, show me him. Christ, I'm sure of it, in heaven is saying, here, you want evidence of my resurrection? This is it, these guys. You and I are the, we are the, we are the evidence of the past resurrection and a foretaste of the coming resurrection. We are the ones, we are the ones that they look to. And we then, of course, when they look at us, we point them to Christ. That's what we're called to do. It's, it's a hard message, but that's what we are called to. We live out this this, world, this calling as best we can. And let me close by simply re giving to you we, we, our value of the gospel. We have a little paragraph that kind of summarizes it. It might be small, but I'll read it to you. We believe that our world is broken and can be only healed, can only be healed by the gospel. As a result, we are committed to sound biblical teaching, not only on Sunday mornings, but in all of our ministry expressions. We seek to make the good news of reconciliation and renewal through Jesus known in our region through our words, evangelism, and actions mercy ministry. And this is only a partial taste. There's so much more I could say about the gospel. We'll get there eventually. But we lean on this fact that we are saved from wrath, though we didn't deserve it. And then we are called to this mission that Christ has given us. Let's pray.